continuing this section called Ways and Means. This next part is called The Crust of Lucid Calm. Again, uh, Lucid Calm is Ajahn Jayasaro's um, rendering of Samadhi. This is a chosen term for that. The word Nimitta is usually rendered in Buddhist texts as sign, quote-unquote. In the context of meditation, it refers to a mental phenomenon which is experienced as a sense perception arising as the mind goes beyond the hindrances. A nimitta is most commonly experienced as a visual form, less often as a sound or a tactile sensation, and rarely as an odor or a taste. In The Path of Purification, the Visuddhimatta, which is a text written by Acharya Buddhaghosa and the main Theravada commentary. In The Path of Purification, nimittas are treated at some length and divided into three categories. Entry into jhana, meditative concentration, is described as being dependent on the meditator shifting focus to a distinctive sign, most commonly a bright light that appears as samadhi deepens. Lumpur and his fellow forest masters were familiar with the treatment of nimittas in the path of purification, but rarely incorporated it in their accounts of the meditation process. They used the term nimitta with a slightly different emphasis. Lumpur employed it in speaking of the mind-made phenomena, colors, lights, visions of beings from other realms that could appear as the mind became calm. He stressed the importance of maintaining the correct attitude to them. Known for what they were, nimittas were harmless. Obsession with them could lead, could lead to a time-wasting detour and, in extreme cases, to psychosis. Armed with the awareness of their dangers, the basic method of dealing with them was simply to refuse to pay them any attention. And Lumpur is speaking here. Whatever form the nimitta takes, don't pay attention to it. While it still persists, re-establish your focus by putting all your attention on the breath. Breathe in and out deeply at least three times, and that may well cut it off. Just keep re-establishing your concentration. Don't see it as being yours. It is merely a nimitta. Nimittas are deceivers. They make us like, they make us love, they make us fear. They're fake, and they're unstable. If one arises, don't give it any significance. It's not yours. Don't chase after it. The most direct and powerful means of letting go of a nimitta was a change of focus from the perception to that which from the perception to that which perceived it. When you see a nimitta, then shift the attention to look directly at your mind. Don't abandon this basic principle. So the um, uh, it's following along from the <coughs> previous readings um, how the mind can get uh, very fascinated, drawn in by um, meditation experiences and uh, the the emphasis that Lumpur Shah would give would be continually to, to not uh, say uh, imbue, not to, to give too much importance or value uh, uh, to the the content of those kind of experiences but rather to be continually looking at the, the attitude towards them and so that the, um, because the, the habits of, of conceit uh, of self-conception and, and the fact of I'm experiencing this, this is my mind, this is this weird thing that's happening to me, this is this wonderful thing that's happening to me, this strange thing um, this, uh, uh, that's happening to me, 
that can can fascinate and can uh, say become a preoccupation, and so that the more colourful and active the meditation experience uh, is, then the the more likely that there is that kind of conceiving going on in the background without it being it being noticed. The mind is say so taken up with the the imagery and, and or the forms and and the the perceptions that are are appearing that the that self creation that's happening is uh, is uh, unnoticed and as I, as he says when you see an imitator then shift the attention to look directly at your mind don't abandon this basic principle visions could be alluring and it was not possible for meditators to simply refuse to take pleasure in them by an act of will what they could do was to immediately recognize any feelings of pleasure that arose as being changeful and based on a false perception. Not all nimittas are enamoring. Another common problem that meditators face is being startled and frightened by them. Prepare your mind with the knowledge that nothing can harm you. If something appears during your meditation and you're frightened by it, then your meditation will come to a halt. If that happens, then bring up the recollection that there is no danger. Let it go. Don't follow it. Or you may, if you wish, take up the nimitta and investigate its conditioned nature. After you've experienced these things a number of times, you'll be unmoved by them. They'll just be normal, nothing to worry about. Yeah, and uh, Lumpur Chao, sometimes he would recount the, um, uh, say, the incident that, or the, the, the time that he'd been studying with another forest, Ajahn, and, and this um, issue of, of nimittas or meditation, visions and experiences it came up in, in the dialogue and the teaching. And this monk had uh, told Ajahn Chah how when he was doing walking meditation one time and his mind got into a very concentrated state, he found himself sinking into the ground. So as he was walking along, he saw his sort of footsteps took him down uh, into the ground, sort of, sort of under the earth, and then, then sort of rising up into the air. And then he exploded. Uh, and so that he said all the time he's doing his walking meditation, but part of him is seeing his body exploding and then he said you could, I could see my guts hanging off the branches of the trees at the end of my walking meditation path but you know, I didn't let it bother my mind <laughs> so that was a bit of an extreme uh, event I've never had the experience of my, seeing my guts hanging from the branches of a tree but um, sometimes these, these experiences can be extremely, uh, extremely vivid and powerful also sometimes it can be the, the case that we just we assume that that's what meditation is. I remember many, um, many years ago when uh, uh, Lumpur Sumato was leading a, a retreat in, in California and uh, one of the retreatants, um, uh, after about four or five days of the retreat, she came to, to see Lumpur and she was, she was really distressed. And she said, ah, you know, this is, this is really bad. My meditation's really coming to pieces. It's, it's terrible, it's terrible, it's awful. And, and so Lumpur asked, well, what's, what's happening? And she said, well, I don't see anything. And he said, well, why is that a problem? She said, well, you know, for years and years, whenever I meditate, I just have this constant stream of, of, uh, of visions and forms. And, you know, and it seemed like there was this, uh, a, a, like an endless flow of interesting uh, visual forms and images that came through her mind. And the kind of meditation that, that Lumpur had been teaching, I think particularly... Um, using the open awareness and listening to the sound of silence, then her, her visions had been switched off. And so that she, she felt that as a terrible bereavement. Like, but, but I can't see anything. It's terrible. And I said, well, I just see the back of my eyelids when I meditate. And 
But this is the way it's been for, for, for years. What's, what's the problem with that? She said, no, you don't understand. I don't see anything. And so that uh, it was the, the fact that her, uh, her mind had associated meditation equals this flow of interesting and colorful, beautiful images. And that's what meditation is. And so that um, took quite, quite a while for... I don't think she was entirely convinced, <laughs> if, I remember, if I remember correctly. She wasn't entirely convinced that um, it was a good thing just to be sitting watching the back of your eyelids. And that was uh, the, the, the quality of peace and the clarity of mind was what the meditation was really for, not just having a, an interesting array of, uh, of images flowing through, uh, through, flowing through one's perceptions. There is, however, a class of nimittas that skilled meditators can use to intensify their practice. These include the mental images of parts of the physical body that, quote, appear to emerge and expand from within the mind, unquote particularly those that occur after the mind emerges from a deep state of samadhi. Such images are significantly more vivid than any that could be produced by ordinary imagination. Contemplation of them, especially visions of the body in a state of decay, can produce a deep insight into the conditioned nature of phenomena, which in turn may lead to a deep dispassion and abandoning attachment to the sense of an embodied self. These potent images are much more likely to arise if the meditator had already devoted time to investigating the body as a discursive meditation. Longpore said that whether or not nimittas could be made use of in the cultivation of wisdom was dependent on the maturity of the meditator. Often he would recommend a meditator to ignore a nimitta, even if it was of the physical body. One day a lay meditator came to pay his respects to Longpore and seek his guidance. He said that while meditating, he would see his body appear as a bleached skeleton floating in front of him. Lumpur explained to him that this is what the path of purification refers to as the Ugaha Nimitta, the acquired image. But rather than going on to explain how to manipulate the object in the way that the text recommends, he said there was no need to do so. It was sufficient to create the conditions of stability and calm, uh, and calm lucidity for wisdom to do its work. When the mind had been primed by samadhi in this way, an object that arose in the mind was experienced as if it was a question, and the immediate recognition of it uh, as impermanent, unsatisfactory and not self appeared as an effortlessly correct answer. And then Again, Lumpur is speaking here. All that is called for is that you calm the mind sufficiently to provide a foundation for vipassana. When wisdom has arisen, then as soon as anything occurs in your mind, you're able to deal with it. There's a solution to every problem. You become aware of the problem and its resolution simultaneously, and the problem ends. The knowing is important. If a problem arises without a solution, then you're in trouble. You're not keeping up with what's happening. So you don't have to do a lot of thinking about it. The solution arises in the present moment simultaneously with the problem even about things that you've never thought about or considered before, without you having to hunt around here and there looking for an answer. He returned to the point that he would make repeatedly with reference to nimittas. Having fully acknowledged the object with equanimity, then turn attention away from the object known to the knowing itself. By doing so, the object would dissolve. Again, Lumpur is speaking, don't run after externals, because if you do, then the image will just keep on expanding. Before you know it, the skeleton will have changed into a pig, then the pig will become a dog, the dog a horse, the horse an elephant, 
and then you'll all get up and chase each other about. Be aware that what you perceive is a nimitta, the crust of the lucid calm. <clears throat> so that, um, that things can proliferate, so that the, the more attention that we give to things, the more we empower them, we, we, we give them life, really, and by paying attention to them. And as he says, you know, the, um, the, the forms can, uh, can lead, one thing can lead to another to another until things get really complicated. The, um, uh, so, say, for example, this speaking about uh, an image of the body arising, then um, I remember one, one monk in our community saying that um, without really planning it or, or thinking very much about it uh, in meditation, then this image of one of his teeth appeared in his mind, like a really very clear, distinct image of tooth. And he said, I've never really thought about my teeth that much, but boom, <laughs> there, there it was, this very, very clear, distinct image of, of, a, of a tooth. And then seeing that... <coughs> um, so clearly in, in, uh, in his mind, and also in the context of meditation, then there's a, as, he's, as it says here, there's a way of seeing it in a, from a different perspective. It's like, yeah, I, I never think about my teeth unless I'm brushing my teeth or I, I am chewing something. And, and, and yet you know, this, th- there is these, uh, this solid object as part of this body. And um, you can uh, see it in an objective way as, of, as part of a, a natural form. And then um, seeing that as sort of one of his teeth in a very uh, objective, clear, kind of a non-personal way, then he, he's, uh, he said he began to, to, when he would meet other people, he'd think of their teeth and think, oh yeah, we're all, actually, we're all just sort of tooth carriers. Yes. <laughs> and that uh, <clears throat> we don't think of each other that way. We think of each other with names or personalities or genders. But he said that the, the image or the nimitta of, a, of this tooth appearing in his mind Said it just yeah had that effect of helping to change the the perspective and to to see how yeah well, why why do we think of each other's names or each other's personalities what makes that more significant than our teeth really <laughs> and so that just in those moments not that he would you know or he did spend years and years on uh, sort of dwelling on that but just seeing how that having arisen in the meditation that had a way of reconfiguring his his perceptions and his way of seeing things. Also with this, uh, this uh, issue that Lumpur is talking about here, about how the, the more attention you give to something, the more you, you strengthen it, and it becomes, as he says, like a, um, the pig becomes a dog, the dog becomes a horse, the horse becomes an elephant, then they'll all get up and chase each other about. That's a, a figurative way of saying how um, the, the, um, we give things strength or we give them uh, life and vitality by by so being interested in them. And uh, for myself, I, uh, I found uh, uh, many years ago, one of the early retreats at Chithurst, I started to get uh, a lot of uh, strange um, sort of f- uh, physical sensations and weird sort of energetic effects. And, I, I, um, uh, and so I found the more that my, my mind was concentrated, the more sort of empty of thought and the more my mind was concentrated, then the more intense these energetic feelings were. Uh, and so, <clears throat> I had, just to give, give this as an example, so I had this distinct sensation of, of, of a pressure on my forehead pushing me backwards. And um, so, <clears throat> I, uh, after this had been uh, happening for a, a few days, and the more I concentrated, the more I, sent, I felt the sense of, of being pushed backwards. And I had this, this question, well, 
am I actually being pushed backwards or is that just a, a sensation arising? What, what is this? So I, I asked uh, uh, Lumpur Sumedho when the question and answer sessions, I said, uh, uh, I, I keep getting this, this sensation, the stronger I concentrate, the more I feel like there's this sort of pressure. Um, and I'm kind of resisting it, not letting, it, uh, not letting myself move. But I'm wondering, um, if I just give into it, uh, should I just give into it and see what happens? Or should I just sort of resist it and not, not, um, uh, and not go along with it? And so uh, the suggestion he made was, well, why don't you just sort of uh, give into it and see what happens? And so I thought, okay. <laughs> and uh, uh, so it was, it was kind of dramatic. Uh, I'm not sure if there's... Uh, I think Ajahn Sundra was there at the time. Uh, this was um, uh, about 35 years ago, maybe longer. And um, so what happened was that uh, I thought, okay, he said, let, uh, let it have its effect and see what, see what goes on. And so then I, I, uh, I felt myself getting pushed further and further backwards. And then I felt the, the back wall, this was in the reception room at Chithurst, was our shrine room at that time. And I said, well, I can actually feel the wall at the back of my head, so I am, I, I am moving backwards. And then the more I just sort of relaxed and, and let that experience take shape, then I just slid down the wall <laughs> onto, the, onto the floor. And I was still in the, in the half-lotus position, but... <laughs> flat on the ground and also my breathing had become extremely uh, intense like I was breathing very very quickly like <laughs> and, uh, and uh, by this time uh, I didn't have any control over what my body was doing so this of course because it was a very small room and 30 people gathered there caused a certain amount of concern and so uh, I could hear these conversations going on say, is he alright what's happening and, you know, <laughs> And Amaro sort of slid down on the floor and he's sort of vibrating. Uh, and <clears throat> so, um, uh, anyway, the, um, the, the long and the short of it was I was lying there. I was actually, it was very peaceful. I felt very, my mind was very bright. I felt very energized, very peaceful. I was kind of enjoying it um, from the inside, but I could also understand that it looked pretty weird from the outside. <laughs> And one of the one of the nuns was a uh, a homeopath, and uh, she had um, some. She was also very fond of Bach flower remedies, so she said rescue remedy, rescue remedy. <laughs> and so they um, she had some rescue remedy uh, to hand, and then one of the monks opened my mouth and dropped some rescue remedy onto my tongue, and then they, this experience came to an end. I was like, oh, I was enjoying that because <laughs> it was extremely bright, very lucid. Uh, experience and um, but all, another factor of it that was very peculiar was that my hands felt enormous like I had these huge boxing gloves on and but and I was completely paralyzed um, so anyway the uh, uh, just to, con to give you the whole story so it turned out that um, when uh, 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 when I was uh, experiencing that I, w I had been taking some homeopathic medicine that was uh, I had a, a long-standing infection in my foot and uh, I had been prescribed this particular medicine. And it's made from a spider poison, the papal cross spider, if you're interested. And um, it, with homeopathy, there's a, if a medicine is particularly uh, perfect or so ideal for a, a certain condition, then a reaction happens that's called approving. So you get like an extreme reaction um, according to that particular medicine. So this was me approving... <laughs> 
this particular medicine and had this this reaction. Anyway, so um, this was a, a kind of a weird and colourful experience, and um, so then uh, uh, I asked Ajahn Sumedha, "Well, what should I <laughs> what should I do in the future?" And you know, because this is this was very weird that this happened and it seemed to be a reaction to this medicine, but. Um, there's also, uh, I get these, these other kind of um, energetic experiences that are going on with the meditation. So uh, he said, well, um, you're, you're free to, to use the meditation as you like, to sort of explore this uh, more if you want to. Uh, you don't have to just sort of resist it or try to not concentrate your mind. But uh, probably it's best if you go and do that off in your kuti rather than here in the shrine room. <laughs> So uh, over the next few days, then I would go and sit in the little hut in the, uh, in the grounds of Chittas where I was living and uh, sharing with another monk. And so, and, I, and so I was experimenting with this. And so that uh, along with these, th- that particular reaction, I th- uh, found I had a, a lot of other sort of involuntary movements. The more my mind concentrated, I would find myself rocking backwards and forwards or my, my head was stretched backwards and all kinds of... Uh, of w- uh, strange sensations going on, and uh, I, I got familiar with how it worked, and uh, and also it seemed to be connected with if I had done a, a yoga session and there was um, uh, a lot of energy in the body from doing yoga, then the, these energetic experiences will be, will be stronger. So um, they over this time, then it was uh, there was a sense of well, this is kind of really interesting and. Colourful, what does it mean? Or, and, or, but also the fact that when I let my mind get concentrated in that way, or these energetic effects were occurring, it was, uh, my mind was extremely bright and, and very, um, it was a, a strong, it's a blissful feeling, so it was enjoyable, <laughs> even though it was, there was all kinds of weird movements going on as well. So uh, after uh, uh, sort of experimenting with this for, for four or five days or a, a week or so, um, uh, I began to notice that I was really enjoying being special. This is a kind of a unique, interesting thing. Like, wow, this is this is my thing that's happening to me, and uh, and this is a a kind of colourful, interesting thing. Um, and uh, <clears throat> and so I, I began to notice there was this, um, uh, say, r- relishing or delighting in that the the kind of uniqueness or the the the, the colourful quality or the strangeness or the the um, uh, say the um, specialness of that <clears throat> and then um, uh, so then I, I thought well the, uh, for some reason I, I thought well maybe uh, that's that's something to look at how how the mind is identifying with the attitude of the mind that's really uh, this is something that's happening to me this is my mind my experience my meditation this is something special happening to me. I thought, well, let's just look at that, that I, me, mine feeling. Um, and so then uh, what, was, what happened then was really very, very interesting because, uh, as I said, I would get these, the more I concentrated my mind, I get these sort of, a lot of involuntary movements, my body swaying around all over the place. But as soon as I asked the question, yeah, uh, who's experiencing this? Or yeah, what, who is the owner of this? Or, does this belong to a person? Then immediately, all that movement just stopped, and my body sat absolutely upright, and everything went very, very still. And it was like everything came into balance. And I thought, well, that's interesting. <laughs> uh, 
As soon as that self-view got punctured, then everything came into balance. As long as it was happening to me and it was my thing and stuff happening in my mind and my, my meditation, then there was this sort of uh, some kind of imbalance in the system that resulted in these involuntary movements and, and strange energetic effects. So that was uh, that was really um, illuminating, and so I thought, oh, that's that that uh, that's a, a clue that there's um, the significant thing uh, is what the mind is doing with that experience. It's not just that it's a an unusual uh, energetic effect. And in the, in the yogic tradition, these are called kriya, k r i y a kriyas, the kind of energ- energetic effects, and. Uh, it's not that, and some some meditation traditions that the more you have of those, the better. It's like a, if you're lurching around all over the place, oh, your practice is really good. Um, <clears throat> but uh, I saw that the 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 way that the mind was relishing it, or identifying with it, or making it something special happening to me, and and that was throwing everything out of balance. And as soon as that self view was let go of, it's like and that kind of question: like, Who's experiencing this? Who does this belong to? Yeah. Uh, does this? Do these feelings have an owner? Then it immediately came in, into balance, and so that um, this uh, aspect of uh, of taking the attention away from the experience or the object, the nimitta, and turning it back onto the the subject um, is really crucial. And that, that so that was that was many many years ago. That was about 1981, I think. How long ago is that? Maybe 40 years ago. <laughs> um, so that was uh, that had a, a, a that was a powerful message that it's uh, yes you can be having some kind of unusual meditation experience and something that is quite valuable you know in terms of of alertness and brightness and and wholesome qualities there was a lot of of goodness there but the mind was taking hold of it and making this uh, making this the self out of it and so that was um, something that I, I, I took as a, as a very helpful lead at that time. To be, uh, be uh, ready, to, as Lumpur Chao puts it, to um, be aware that what you perceive is a nimitta, the crust of lucid calm, the crust or the, just the, the outside wrapping. It's just like an, an, an effect of samadhi. Don't, don't be deluded by that, but uh, you know, turn the attention back onto the... Uh, uh, the mind itself, and and then that then those wholesome qualities can really put to be put to a good effect. They can have a the best um, results possible, rather than the mind is sort of dwelling on I- interesting or colourful um, crusts. <laughs> like we, like the Lumpur Chao would say, it's like the the peel of the banana. It's like you you, you carefully peel the banana, then you eat the banana skin and throw the actual um, fruit away. Don't just get to don't just dwell upon the external features. So, any questions, thoughts, reflections on any of that? Yes. Um, could you do sort of the same um, when sort of fear arises? So you have kind of sort of um, sensations like that this arise, like you might twitch or. Um, and, and, and panic arises in you. Can you use kind of the, the, a similar technique and, just, and ask yourself who, who is it? Yes. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> it's uh, if I mean I didn't find myself afraid of it. I was just kind of excited, <laughs> so interested. Oh, this is fascinating. 
So I didn't, I didn't find myself frightened of it or worried about it as such, but more interested in it. But that, exactly that, like that asking of a question, like who's afraid of this? Who's afraid? What's there to be afraid of? And then you're not asking a question to get a, a verbal answer, but just um, using that way of exploring the, the experience to get a perspective on it, to see it in, in a clearer light. Because when that sort of question is, you know, who's afraid and what's there to be afraid of, you're contacting that intuitive wisdom, that sort of, you're sort of consulting the, the inner oracle, as it were, that recognizes, well, there, there isn't anyone to be afraid and there's nothing to be afraid of. And so that's a, a non-verbal, non-conceptual realization or intuition. So you're, you're just that use of that quest, kind of questioning or reflecting helps the, the, that, that inner wisdom, that, that intuition to, to, sort of, uh, to arise and to be clarified. And it's good to experiment, you know, that, because different, different things work at different times. And so, <clears throat> so sometimes a question like, who does this belong to? Or sometimes making a statement, like, this is mine, this is, this is my experience, or my problem, or my achievement, or just uh, you know, stating with great clarity, like almost highlighting that, that feeling, this is mine, this is my mind, and this is, this is special, or this is awful. And that's naming the, 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 the judgment or the reaction, and then that... Uh, uh, that, in a sense, that clarification, that stating clearly in the space of the mind, then it, again it helps that intuitive wisdom to operate on it and realize, well, it's not that special, <laughs> or, like, or what is there to own this? This is just a, a pattern of experience, um, and that. Uh, uh, um, so, like to. to to use that kind of a reflection to say, this is mine, this is my mind, and not, doing, not adding any, any extra commentary to that, then the absurdity of my, this is mine, it, it, that, the absurdity of that becomes apparent. It's not like a, a, an idea about it, but just, oh, that's ridiculous. It's the, how can anything really be owned? And what, is it, what is there here to do any owning? Ah. So the point of that kind of reflection and, and using those ways of, of looking at experience is that relaxation of the heart that comes as a result of that, that sort of, oh, of course. Um, and then to, to let that have its effect and to essentially leave that alone, just let that, that clarity of vision have its effect. That make sense? Yeah. Any other thoughts, questions? Yes. I was on a retreat at uh, Jamyang and um, <coughs> I remember it was really uh, energised anyway. And then I sat and I started to just practice mindfulness really, really. And all of a sudden, um, it's as if I was just really, the energy was going really high up into the universe almost. And, um, but I couldn't keep up. And I got heart palpitations, and it was so loud, it was knocking on the chest. And I was thought, wow, oh, what do I do? 
So I've really dinged to it thinking, oh, that would help. It actually got worse. And I was sweating as well. And uh, but then um, I realized um, I touched the ground. I just stopped and touched the ground. Mm -hmm. And it, it's all like eased off anyway. <laughs> Off. And but then we had the meditation interviews I was speaking to get your He said it was Lung, which is a kind of a, they call it a meditation. That's a, a very broad term in yeah, Tibetan. That's right, yeah. Any kind of meditation weirdness is yes. Lung. Energy, weird energy stuff. Yes, that's as well. Lung. Yeah. But it was interesting with, with, with the, the, me just my hand mm -hmm. down and sort of like touching the ground but you know they sort of oh it's not that bad but I don't know what it is that was the main issue I didn't know what it was well often uh, I'm, I'm not an expert in, in, in these things but often where you do get these strong energetic effects they're, they're, they are a result of uh, a lot of concentration or um, and um, so that the if that if the energy system is getting out of balance, then uh, uh, as uh, you as you found, then simply you know, like a, with an electrical current, you know, just just earthing it can have a can have a good effect. Um, and uh, it, it, again, it, it's I, I found that that um, uh, if I opened my eyes and just withdrew my attention from that concentration, then it, it, things would just naturally uh, sort of the uh, would abate uh, and calm down but also I found that particularly that the mind that was worried or excited or interested that it was that that was the key thing that made it uh, that brought things out of balance was the uh, that um, the attitude of the mind towards it and that the the more there was a, a, a clear and balanced attitude then things didn't get uh, so out of whack, but uh, I I'd never didn't have heart palpitations or, or incipient heart attack or anything. But yeah, but it's different things work for different people, so it's good to to explore and to if the, those kind of effects do happen, to see uh, um, what helps to to bring things into balance or to help uh, that that sort of energy work in a. a uh, a supportive way rather than just creating um, sort of difficulty or confusion. Yes? How does one know if this intuitive knowledge is true or does it have to be true? <laughs> um, well, uh, by seeing the, the effects of that, so that um, if, if, say, for example, you ask a question like, who does this belong to? Then there's, there's a, a relaxation. Go, oh, of course. Mm. Then it, it's true enough for the dukkha that was there to have ended. Mm. <laughs> so it's, a, it's, a, it's not like total arahantship, you know, but it's a, um, in that moment, there's a direct re recognition that a certain quality of grasping has ended, and the result of that grasping stopping is a sense of, of ease or spaciousness of oh of course and that uh, it, it's it's not a, a conceptual knowing but that sense of <coughs> at least the way that, that this it works in 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 my mind is that 
you know, if you're if you're using that way of reflecting to say, well, who does this belong to? Then that there's a uh, that recognition. Oh, well, who isn't quite the right word? It's not really a, a who. Uh, it doesn't have to spell that out as a thought, but there's there's a, a recognition. Just like if you can, if uh, the 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 sun comes up in the morning and it's broad daylight, you can see. Oh, that's a tree. You know, it's, uh, it's not because there's light, you can see. It's, it's not. There's no doubt about it. It's like you, because of the light in your eye, you say, "Oh, that's a tree there." You know, before when it was dark, it was. I wasn't quite sure that was a cloud off in the distance or it was a building. But now that the sun's up, I can see it's a tree. So, in the same way, um, that um, that clarity of understanding or recognition of, oh, of course, yeah. Uh, how can yeah? How can anything really be owned? Um, I some, today someone asked the question: Do we own our children? <laughs> so my first response was: Nobody can really own anything, <laughs> let alone owning your children. Um, and so that uh, that. And, and then when I made that comment, then uh, then you could you could see for a number of the people that were there, there was oh yeah right for a moment there's a recognition of course before the the thinking mind jumps in and starts making other stories in that moment they're saying well how can anything really be owned oh and that, and there's there's uh, um, you're not saying that's an absolute truth but in that moment there's a a relaxation of the heart and there's oh of course there's a as a recognition, so it's true enough, or reliable enough. But as uh, we were having a conversation the other day, it's saying you, um, that <coughs> that um, when there is that sense of um, of seeing things clearly, then rather okay, now I've got it. Now I know this is the way forward. This is what I should be doing. That that's the mind grasping it again. But instead, it's like well. This this looks like a good way forward, or this looks like it's 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 true. This looks like, this looks like it's real. Okay, this seems uh, worth following or or, or, or uh, developing, and, and let's see where that that uh, leads to. Like a, there's a path. It looks like there's a it's a good direction to go. So rather than assuming, okay, now I've got it. This is the right thing. This is what I should be doing. This is this is the truth, and then grasping that. Perception is like, oh, this looks like a good way forward. Let's try this and see what happens. And if that, the more that the mind has that, so you're, you're living with what they call a working hypothesis. You know that word, hypothesis? Like it's a, um, it's, it's a good guess. Mm-hmm. Like I, this, this looks like it might be a good way forward. Let's try this and see what happens. So um, that yeah, that kind of attitude rather than a wanting certainty. Yeah. Okay, now I want to know, I want to be sure. It's like, well, the, that kind of certainty just doesn't happen. <laughs> but the, the, uh, um, that sense of, oh, this makes sense, that seems to f- fit with my experience, that looks like it's a good way to go, let's try that. And, and without making any assumptions, let's see where that goes. If you want truth, in terms of a concept or a plan, it, you'll be disappointed. They, because you know, in, in our way of thinking in the in the world, we we like to have certainty in terms of plans or ideas or agreements, concepts. But from the Buddha's Buddha's point of view, 
that there's no such thing as a as a perfect concept or a totally you know reliable concept. There's there's a simple phrase that he uses repeatedly in the teachings, which is the Pali is yena yena himanyanti tatatanghoti anyatati. Whatever you conceive it to be, the truth is always other than that. So any concept can only be a, 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 a working hypothesis. It can only be a half-truth or a convenient fiction. It can't be an absolute fact or an absolute truth or a perfect, uh, a perfect concept. So <clears throat> that um, uh, is maybe frustrating to our thinking mind, <laughs> but in terms of keeping a, a clear perspective on, on life and our experience... And you you know it's helping to recognize well it, this looks like it's a good way let's try it and see what happens this you know, it seems to be a good thing well um, maybe maybe not let's let's look closely and and see how it turns out so that there's the mind is is not taking things for granted it's not trying to find security or certainty in that which is uncertain it's not trying to find um, uh, that sense of of rely something being reliable when it can't be reliable. <laughs> You're not looking for certainty where uh, you can only find uncertainty. Okay, so to continue, the next section is called Calm and Insight. And this first section is called Samadhi. In his expositions of the practice of Samadhi, Lumpur usually preferred to avoid speaking in terms of jhanas, states of meditative absorption. Instead, he would refer to the various mental states known as jhana factors that constitute these jhanas. His reasoning was that the jhana factors such as bliss, sukha, or equanimity were directly experienceable by the meditator, whereas jhanas, quote-unquote, were simply names for different constellations of these factors. They were, in other words, conventions, and as such, they could lead the mind away from, rather than towards, awareness of the present reality. This is Lumpur speaking. If the mind is clear, then it's just like sitting here normally and seeing things around you. Closing the eyes becomes no different from opening them. Seeing while the eyes are closed becomes the same as seeing with the eyes open. There's no doubt about anything at all, merely a sense of wonder. How can these things be possible? It's unbelievable, but here they are. There will be sustained appreciation, vichara, arising spontaneously in conjunction with rapture, happiness, a fullness of heart, and lucid calm. Subsequently, the mind will become even more refined and will be able to discard the meditation object. Now, vitaka, the lifting of the mind onto the object, will be absent, and so will vichara, we say the mind discards vitaka and vichara, that's um, a, a, a sustained, uh, applied and sustained thinking. Actually, it's not so much that they're discarded. What is really meant is that the mind becomes more concentrated, more compact. When it's calm, then vitaka and vichara are too coarse to stay within it, and so it's said that they are discarded. Without vitaka lifting the mind to the object and vichara to appreciate its nature, there is simply this experience of repleteness, bliss, and one-pointedness. So repleteness means fullness of heart, or a sense of wholeness. Repleteness, bliss, and one-pointedness. 
So piti, sukha, and ekagata. So repleteness is what Ajahn Jayasara is translating as uh, from uh, piti, bliss, uh, sukha, and one-pointedness, ekagata. I don't use the terms first, second, third, and fourth jhana. I speak only of lucid calm and of vitaka, vichara, rapture, bliss, and unity, and of their progressive abandonment until only equanimity remains. This development is called the power of samadhi, the natural expressions of the mind that has realized lucid calm. So there's a gradual movement in stages that depends on constant and frequent practice. Once Lumpur was asked about the relationship between the first four jhana factors and the fifth, ekagata, usually translated into Thai as meaning single-focused and in English as one-pointed. He replied that ekagata was like a bowl and the other four factors were like the fruit in the bowl. An interesting image. A cat watching a mouse hole has a kind of samadhi and so does a safe cracker but theirs is a natural amoral concentration of instinct and desire, not the samadhi that issues from a disciplined gathering of inner forces and which provides the foundation of wisdom. The Buddha distinguished between right samadhi, samasamadhi, an essential element of the path to liberation, and wrong samadhi, mitya samadhi, which leads away from it. Lumpur explained that the term wrong samadhi included any state of calm that lacked the awareness necessary to create the foundation for insight. Again, Lumpur is speaking. He says, Samadhi can be divided into two kinds, wrong samadhi and right samadhi. Take good notice of this distinction. In wrong samadhi, the mind is unwavering. It enters a calmness which is completely silent and lacking all awareness. You can be in that state for a couple of hours or even a whole day, but during that time you have no idea where you've got to or what state your mind is. It's wrong samadhi. It's like a knife that you've sharpened well and then just put away without using. You gain no benefit from it. It's a deluded calm that lacks alertness. You think that you've reached the end of the practice of meditation and don't search for anything more. It's a danger, an enemy. At this stage it's dangerous to you because it prevents wisdom from arising. There can be no wisdom without a sense of moral discrimination. Then right samadhi could be known by the clarity of awareness. No matter how deep right samadhi becomes, it's always accompanied by awareness. There's a perfect mindfulness and alertness, a constant <coughs> knowing. Right samadhi is a kind of samadhi that never leads you astray. This is a point that practitioners should clearly understand. You can never dispense with the knowing. For it to be right samadhi, the knowing must be present from the beginning right until the end. Please keep observing this. So this uh, wrong samadhi that he's talking about is a kind of <coughs> disconnection or a switching off. So probably many of us have experienced this in meditation. That, uh, sometimes you think, oh, my, medita- my mind's really peaceful. <laughs> then you realize that, you're, that that strange sound that you're hearing is actually your snoring. <laughs> there's a sort of a switching off. It can be peaceful and there's a, there's a certain degree of, of cognition. And it, and it, is, it is quiet, but it's not, it's not luminous. So it's rather like if you have a, a, a torch and the battery is very, very low, so that there, there is a little bit of light coming from the torch. It's like one little spot. Um, but uh, the, the batteries are nearly dead, but you, you, you have got one little spot of light that, that is still there. So that, 
that can be deceptive and you can feel like, oh, I'm wide awake, but, uh, and that you're, you're, you can have the sense that you're paying attention, but really be uh, mostly switched off. And uh, 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 I certainly can speak from my own experience. I've had those, those kind of perceptions. And that, um, and it, as uh, Lumpur says, it's, a, it's an enemy, it's a problem um, in, in meditation because you can get quite addicted to that. It can be quite comfortable, you know, you, you're, and, but you're not realizing that it's actually quite a, a, a dull or um, a, a dissociated state. There was a, a um, uh, uh, I remember, uh, I wasn't actually there, but uh, I was told of this uh, occasion where um, Lumpur Sumedha was, was visiting Chithurst and uh, was, was uh, giving a Dhamma talk, and there was a, a senior monk who was visiting, and uh, so he was sitting right up next to, to Lumpur Sumedha, and as as he was giving the Dhamma talk, this is in the, not in the, Current Dhamma Hall, this is in the, the shrine room at, the, at Chithurst. And so he's sitting there right next to, to, uh, to Lumpur Sumedha, and, and during the time that Lumpur's giving this sort of rousing, inspiring, you know, colorful Dhamma talk, and he's kind of, kind of lurching kind of here, there, and everywhere. And, and to the point that people were sitting nearby, is he doing that on purpose? It's so rude. You know, how can he be? He's kind of completely zoned out. and and yeah, Lumpur's got good concentration, so he's not being put off his, his theme, but this monk is kind of it's gonna hit Lumpur in the in the you know in the shoulder any minute now. It's kind of lurching around all over the place. And so um, one of the other monks who was there, you know, spoke to him afterwards and said, How could you do that? It was so rude. You know, you were you're you know, you were nodding in such in such an extreme way. You know, Cracked your head open on the on the, the sitting platform, and you're about to collide with Lumpur. And you, how could you do that? It's so rude. I was completely awake the whole time. I heard every word that Lumpur said. <laughs> said you you were totally out of it. I was not. I was completely awake. Well, I was watching you. You nearly cracked your head on the floor. You know? And so the subjective impression of that of that person was that they were wide awake. From the outside, they were you know they were ninety nine percent switched off. <laughs> So it can be extremely deceptive, um, and uh, and uh, a, a sort of a, a once your mind has got habituated to falling into those, it's called the bawanga, so the the um, sort of residual consciousness. Then uh, it, it's uh, it's difficult to train the mind to not go into those states uh, again. Just Tibetans um, say that if you get habituated into this kind of meditation, you'll be reborn as a Reborn as a cow, yes. <laughs> it's quite possible. Well, speaking of rebirth, there's also um, one of the, uh, the states of, uh, of uh, one of the planes of being is called the Asanya Sata Brahma realm. And it's a, it's a particular realm uh, that it's, it's very refined. I think it's the 18th Brahma realm. So it's quite high up in the, in the sort of, uh, in the heavenly realms. And it's a, it's a uh, if you've um, developed your meditation around dis, uh, switching off the senses and uh, dissociating the mind from the, from the sense world, um, then you. Uh, but you know you're you're you've lived a very wholesome life and you're you're developed a lot of, of skillful qualities. But the way that you've you develop your meditation or your mind is to be dissociated in, in that way. Then you get born in the, the Asanya Sata Brahma realm, 
And in this realm you have a, a, an enormous and very glorious Brahma body and you live for thousands of eons but you're completely unconscious the whole time. <laughs> the entire lifespan you are unconscious. That's why asanya means, means unconscious. So it's the asanya sata, Brahma realm. So that you have a, all this good karma you've created and you get to live for 20,000 eons in a Brahma world but you're unconscious, you're asleep the whole time. So that you live that whole life unconscious and then pass away from that realm and reappear in, in another one. So that's a, a salutary lesson. <laughs> so, okay, so let's just carry on with this a little bit. On another occasion, he said that inner peace could be divided into two kinds, coarse and subtle. The coarse kind occurred when the meditator identified with the bliss that arose from samadhi practice and assumed the bliss to be the essential element of the peace. The subtle peace was the fruit of wisdom, and it occurred when the experience of the mind itself, as that which knows all transient pleasant and unpleasant experiences, was understood to be the true peace. So the, the, the coarse kind is identifying with the blissful feelings and seeing that, that blissful quality as the essential aspect of peace and the other one, the subtle peace, is where the mind recognizes that it's actually the, rather the, the, um, the experience of the mind itself, that, uh, that quality of knowing, of vicha, that awakened awareness, that is the, the, the true peace. So the peace, in one, the, the peace is being seen in the object, the, 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 the feeling, the kind of blissful feeling, the peace is placed out in the object realm, and the other one, the, what he calls the, the, the subtle piece, is the, the true piece is really in the, in the subject realm, on the, 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 the side of the, the knowing rather than the, in the content of the known. Does that make sense? So that the, uh, the, the, the real piece is in the attitude, not in the object. Then Lumpur is speaking again. The pleasant and the unpleasant are states of being, states we're born into expressions of attachment. As long as we attach to the pleasant or the unpleasant, there can be no liberation from samsara. The bliss of samadhi is not true inner peace. That peace comes through dwelling in the awareness of the true nature of the pleasant and unpleasant without attachment. Thus it is taught that the mind that lies beyond the pleasant, sukha, and the unpleasant, dukkha, is the true goal of Buddhism. Sometimes Longpo made use of the commentarial division of samadhi into three levels, as these were clearly distinguishable on the basis of duration and intensity. So, momentary samadhi, kanika samadhi, is the initial short-lived intervals of calm experienced as the mind becomes focused on its object. Uh, access samadhi, upachara samadhi, is the state in which the five hindrances have been overcome, but not securely so. There's still some background movement in the mind, but it's not distracting. And then absorption, apana uh, samadhi, is the deepest level of samadhi, a bright stillness in which no sense data appears to the mind or is so fleeting and peripheral as to be inconsequential. Access samadhi is the state in which the wisdom faculty functions most fluently. It precedes and succeeds attainment of absorption samadhi. The access that follows absorption is a more potent base for wisdom development than that which precedes it. 
Lumpur compared the mind in access samadhi to a chicken in a coop, not completely still, but moving in a clearly defined area. So in Thailand, uh, they use a, a sort of wicker, um, like an inverted bowl. A chicken coop is, uh, uh, and it's usually about uh, about two or three feet across, maybe a, a, a about a yard across, uh, so that the chicken can move around inside it a little bit. Um, but the, the 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 boundary of its movement is clearly is clearly limited, clearly marked. Not completely still, but moving in a clearly defined area, unable to run off at will. On other occasions, he said, it is as if the mind is enclosed within a glass dome. The mind is aware of sense impressions, but it's not affected by them. It is the state, he said, in which the mind can see things in their true light. This is Lumpur speaking. Having abided in the state of complete lucid calm for a sufficient time, the mind withdraws from it to contemplate the nature of external conditions in order to give rise to wisdom. So when people ask about um, meditation and the usefulness of of absorption, so uh, the apana samadhi or developing jhana, the example that I usually give uh, um, is to say that um, the understanding is that the most fertile uh, area for developing wisdom is what they call access concentration, upachara samadhi. But if that's the maximum limit, if you can only just reach access concentration, if that's as much as you can manage, then it's kind of a stretch to sustain the attention at that level. So the usefulness of developing deeper states of concentration is so that um, it, you're not at full stretch to keep the mind at that access concentration. So the example I give is to say, if if you can run for, for half a mile, but that's as far as you can go, and that's you're completely finished after you've run for half a mile, then that's like as if the access concentration was the, the, the most concentration that you could manage. If you are a bit fitter and you can happily run for five or ten miles, then that first half mile is, is easy. It's not, a, it's not a stretch. It's not difficult at all. And so that the value of developing deeper states of concentration is so that you're not at full stretch. Like if you can run five or ten miles, then you're not at full stretch to, to just go the, the first half mile. So that... Um, the, um, the, the value of developing absorption then is to give more strength to the, uh, the ability of the mind to stay at access concentration and to watch the arising and passing of, of the world of form, feeling, perceptions, mental formations and consciousness as it comes, comes and goes. And As um, Lumpur puts it here, having abided in the state of complete lucid calm, so having, if the mind has been in a deep state of concentration, sufficient time, the mind withdraws from it to contemplate the nature of external conditions. So leaving that state of deeper absorption to stay at the access level, so then that's the, the most fertile ground for, um, for contemplation. So it's a bit like, to change the analogy, like uh, the, the seashore, the, the, um, in the warm tide pools between the, the sea and the land is where the, uh, a lot of... Um, fertile development and evolution occurs so that that um, fertile boundary between the mind being sort of caught up in the sense world and the mind in deep absorption that that sort of the what they call the littoral zone or that that uh, meeting point uh, like the t- the the warm tide pools um, at the between the water and the land is that that's the most fertile region for developing insight and wisdom yes um 
regarding this, uh, um, asking questions in order to, you know, like what you were mentioning um, <coughs> about today about, you know, asking a question, uh, mm -hmm. who am I or who is experiencing this? And, and then when the letting go happens through that, or some, some experience of letting go or some experience of mm -hmm. peace, um, how does the happiness that comes with that and then how does that all that that connect with samadhi and with the course the two types of happiness that were just mentioned about like the course and the subtle the course one being like the piti and the sukha and the refined one being more about the joy and the awareness um, is the latter kind the one that would come about when one experiences this happiness when asking a question and letting go that way or how, how does this kind of discursive activity relate to it? Uh, well, the, um, it's, it's a good question. I would say using that kind of wise reflection or questions or statements, um, that is, uh, say, most helpfully carried out at that access level, at the upachara um, level of concentration. So the mind is paying attention to the present moment, but then also it's... Uh, it's not caught up in particular patterns of perception or thinking. It's it's attending to the present, but it's able to use reflective thought, like vitakra and vichara, sustained and applied thought. Uh, you're using sustained and applied thought you know, in that that kind of um, questioning or making statements. And so that then, when those questions are are, are put, or the, the mind makes a statement like, like this is mine. And then, oh, how ridiculous! Then that um, uh, what it's doing is it, it's uh, in a sense clarifying the quality of awareness uh, in that moment. The mind is letting go, so that then it's knowing clearly that the the present experience and the obstructions of me, the thinker, me, the doer, me, the owner of this, has fallen away. So, in a sense, it's revealing that the 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 subtle. Um, Happiness or subtle um, delight of the, the the quality of awareness itself, um, and so that because it's not as though the object is particularly blissful, it's more like it's the the attitude of oh of course, so it's more the that uh, the the quality of delight or, or ease is there in the in the attitude. It's not the the um, so much the in the realm of the object. So once again, seven o'clock has come around. It happens so fast every day. <laughs> <laughs>